Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, and we read the first five verses. Second Timothy, chapter 4, reading from the first verse. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. A few weeks ago, I attended the funeral of a lovely Christian lady. She died aged 101. Her son's one of my closest friends. Joan and I traveled down to Glasgow for the funeral. And as we were waiting to go into the service, a stranger approached me. I'd never met him before, never seen him before. He told me his name. I assumed he was one of the wider family. And he looked at me and he asked me two questions. First question, do Presbyterians believe in predestination? I thought an unusual question to ask someone you've never met before. I said, we absolutely do. It is one of the great comforts of our life that our Heavenly Father mysteriously, most often, but gloriously ordains all things according to the counsel of His will. He looked at me and then he said, question two, are Presbyterians Calvinists? I said, I certainly hope so. <laughs> and then he said this, but wasn't John Calvin a bad man? I smiled and said, actually, he was a very good man who for 500 years has had a very bad press. The very word Calvin, Calvinism, Calvinist, conjures up in people's minds thoughts of hard-nosed, narrow-hearted, narrow-minded Christians who want everyone to be just like them. And it's the same with the word Puritan. People talk about being puritanical. They don't mean you're godly, God-exalting, Christ-rejoicing. They mean that you're narrow-hearted, narrow-minded, a killjoy, someone who doesn't want anyone really 
to know anything about the joys of life. And so to say to someone, I believe it would be a great thing for the church of Jesus Christ today to have the same mindset as the Puritans did 400 years ago, people would look at you with bewilderment. They would have no idea what you were saying, except what they would hear would be this. You want the church of Jesus Christ to be joyless, narrow-hearted, narrow-minded. The question that we're asking today is, does the church of Jesus Christ today need a mindset that was forged and formed, shaped and styled 400 years ago? Well, the, the answer to that question depends on the answer that we give to a more basic question. Was the Puritan mindset shaped and styled, forged and formed according to the Word of God. Our only interest in Puritans and Puritanism is because we believe essentially, principially, Puritans were animated by a passion for the glory of God and for the extension of His kingdom in this world. The only reason why we would ever think of saying to the church, we need to go back 400 years. It's not because we're antiquarians, not because we have some kind of fetish thought about Puritans, but because what we read in the works of Puritans reminds us of what we read in the Word of God. They're seeking to live out the truths that God has imperishably engraved in his transgenerationally true word. Let me begin by reminding you what Jeremy reminded us of yesterday and what the other speakers have highlighted. The Puritan movement, like the Reformation, wasn't monochrome. Puritanism covered a wide spectrum of convictions and emphasis. It really would be a fundamental mistake to think of Puritanism as an undifferentiated movement for religious reform. The English Puritans wanted the Church of England purified. They wanted the dregs of popery, as John Knox put it, removed from the church. They wanted the church reformed meaningfully and reshaped and styled by the Word of God alone. The Scots, on the other hand, they didn't want the church purified. They believed they had a pure church. They wanted to keep the church they had because they believed it was truly reformed and had been styled and shaped by the Word of God. Puritanism is an umbrella term. There were Presbyterians who were Puritans. There were Episcopalians who were Puritans. 
There were Congregationalists who were Puritans. There were actually a few Erastians who were Puritans. And in the Westminster Assembly, uh, about 120 to 125 delegates, about 60 at the most, would meet with each session. There was a, a vast spectrum of people represented. There were even six hypothetical universalists in the Westminster Assembly. Robert Bailey in his journal expresses deep consternation that the works of Moise Amiro are being handed round the assembly while they're discussing the extent of the atonement. And Bailey is bewildered by this. He says, I can't believe that the fancies of Amiro are being embraced by men that I thought better of. So, Puritanism is not an undifferentiated movement. But having said that, there was a common core of truth commitments that Puritans throughout the spectrum embraced and that are greatly and desperately needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. I want to mention 10. We'll see how far we get. Number one, we need to recover God-honoring biblical worship. The great concern of the Puritans was not first soteriology, but theology. That our worship of God must be shaped and styled, informed, infused, directed in all its parts by God's own written revelation. Now in this, the Puritans were simply the heirs of the Reformation. Many of you will know that John Calvin responded to uh, Sadoletto in 1539, one of the great Reformation treatises, if you haven't read it please make time to read it. And Calvin is responding to Sadoletto, who had come as the Pope's emissary to try and win back Geneva after Geneva had removed Calvin and Farrell in 1538. And he wrote this very engaging, somewhat Jesuitically engaging letter to the people of Geneva saying, come back to Mother Rome. Come back to Mother Rome. And the Genevans didn't know what to do. So eventually, through discussing the matter with, with Bern and Zurich, they appealed to Calvin. They had removed him summarily two and a, a year or so before. Please help us. And in the space of six days, I think, Calvin pens this response to Sadoletto. And in the midst of the response, he says this, nothing is more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous worship of God. Think on that. Nothing is more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous worship of God. 
1543, and we will get to the Puritans, but in 1543, John Calvin wrote another of the great treatises of the Reformation entitled On the Necessity of Reforming the Church. And he dedicated this little work to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. And in the preface, Calvin says to the Holy Roman Emperor, Your Majesty, perhaps you are asking yourself, why was there a Reformation? And it's it's Calvin's answer that is striking. He says, Your Majesty, God raised up men for Reformation because, number one, God was not being worshipped according to his word. And attached to that, God's salvation in Jesus Christ was being hidden from the people. But it's the priority that the reformers gave and the Puritans gave to the worship of God that we desperately need to recover in the church of Jesus Christ today. Our worship has become a prisoner to the culture in which we live. Our worship has become a prisoner to charismatic showmen and showwomen, even worse. John Owen has a comment very similar to Calvin's in Volume 2, Communion with God. God never allowed the will of the creature to decide how best to worship him. Worshiping God in ways not appointed by him is severely forbidden. The principle that the church has the power to institute and appoint anything or ceremony belonging to the worship of God other than what Christ himself has instituted as own is the cause of all the horrible superstitions and idolatry, of all the confusion, blood, persecution, and wars that have arisen in the Christian world. I've never really understood why evangelical Christians can be so passionate about the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and defend it with all their might, and yet be so cavalier about the doctrine of worship. The primary concern of God's Word is that we worship our God as He has decreed it, not as we imagine it. That's why I greatly that's putting it mildly, greatly dislike the phrases traditional worship and contemporary worship. By traditional worship, people usually mean a worship that's dull and staid and unimaginative, whereas contemporary worship is is vibrant and engaging and truly spiritual. But brothers and sisters, the choice we have is not between traditional worship and contemporary worship. The choice we have, and this deeply animated the Puritan mindset, is between God-ordained worship and man-devised worship. What Paul writes to the Colossians and calls will worship. If our worship is not in reverence and in awe 
It isn't Christian. God takes his worship seriously. Think of Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu offer up strange fire, unauthorized fire. They no doubt thought this would be a good thing. They knew that God liked fire. Well, let's give him fire. And you'll remember what God did. He killed them. He struck them down. He was placarding to the church. I take my worship seriously. Now, people will say, well, Ian, you know, that was then. We live under the new covenant. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. Do you know the reason, says Paul, why some of you are sick and some of you have died? It's because you are abusing the Lord's Supper. You are not discerning the body, and I think it's a double entendre Paul is using. He's very, not as much as John's gospel, but Paul is very often using double entendres. And I think he's saying, you're not discerning the body. You're not discerning that Christ died for these believers that you are disregarding and arrogantly trampling upon in your fellowships. But you're not discerning the body because these are your brothers and sisters. And the reason why some of you are sick and some of you have died is because you are not worshiping God as he has decreed and revealed. Now, this, of course, came to be known as the regulative principle. The Word of God alone regulates how we are to worship him. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, towards the end of book four, chapter 10, section 30 in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin uses a phrase that I found so helpful. He has just been saying that worship will vary from culture to culture. It will change from time to time. Therefore, Committed as he was to the regulative principle, he ends with these words, let love be our guide and all will be safe. He's saying there will of necessity by virtue of culture and inclination and time be differences. Don't stand in judgment over your brothers and sisters because they don't explicate the regulative principle the way you do. Let love be our guide, and all will be safe. That's a mindset we desperately need to recover in the church of Jesus Christ today. Our God is a consuming fire. We need to worship him with reverence and awe according to his word, not according to our own imaginations or ideas. Secondly, the recovery of God honoring gospel preaching. Arminianism appalled the Puritans for two reasons. It robbed God of his glory, 
and it imperiled the salvation of sinners. If you think that you can make some kind of contribution to your salvation, you place yourself outside the salvation of God. The Puritans were passionate in their concern to proclaim the grace of God in Jesus Christ, or perhaps even better, to proclaim Jesus Christ as the grace of God, the all-sufficient Savior. We can add nothing to what He has done. He has done it all. And because He has done it all, all the praise, all the honor, all the glory alone belongs to Him. And that's why Paul writes as he does, isn't it, in in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It wasn't that he'd got out of bed on the wrong side that morning. It wasn't that he was crotchety or cross-grained when he wrote, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than the one we preach to you, let them be accursed of God. That's strong language. How intolerant the Reformers and the Puritans were. A later Scotsman made this comment. If God has really done something in Christ on which the salvation of the world depends, and if he has made it known, then it is a Christian duty to be intolerant of everything which ignores denies or explains it away. Now, he's not saying we're to be angry. He's not saying we're to be men and women who speak evil of those who preach another gospel. But he is saying we're to be absolutely intolerant of their convictions and their teachings. The concern of the Puritans was the glory of Jesus Christ. And when the grace of God in Jesus Christ is not front and center, the church becomes a prey to charismatic showmen. It's the grace of God that humbles us. Because the only way we can come to God is with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. And if you've anything in your hands, you can't cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. We desperately need to recover the centrality of the grace of God in the gospel. But then thirdly, and related to that, we need to recover God-honoring, Christ-centered preaching. The Puritans didn't ignore the societal convulsions in the middle decades of the 17th century. They understood, though, amidst all the societal convulsions, they understood that the great need of their nation was preeminently 
the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's words at the end of 2 Corinthians 2. These words never fail to arrest me. We are not like so many. So many, says Paul. Peddlers, you, adulterators of the word of God. We are not like those who water it down to make it acceptable and pleasing. We're not like those who, who have an eye for what the chorus are thinking. We are not like so many who peddle the word of God. But as of God, before God in Christ, we preach. Cotton Mather wrote, we preach Christ and him crucified, so exhibit as much as you can of a glorious Christ. Yea, let the motto upon your whole ministry be, Christ is all. Let others develop the pulpit fads that come and go. Let us specialize in preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read Paul's letters, you perhaps might wonder at times, did Paul not realize there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire? An abomination before God. An abomination Why is he not writing about the abominableness of the slavery, the enslaving, the stealing of men and women, the subjugating of them? Well, actually he was. He preached Jesus Christ crucified because that, that is what society needed. That is what ultimately addresses the heart of of the tragedy, the societal tragedies that afflicted that age and every other age subsequently. The tragedy today in the church so often is that we desire to have something more irresistible than truth to plead truth's cause. And there is nothing more irresistible than truth to plead truth truth's cause. You see, and I'm quoting another Scot, it is not only a mistake but a sin to trust attractions for the ear and the eye and to draw people to the church by the same methods by which they are drawn to a place of entertainment. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is nothing more essential, nothing more glorious, nothing more needful. Let me mention just two things in relation to Puritan preaching. When Percival Wyburn in 1581 said that the hotter sort of of Protestants are called Puritans, the hotter sort of Protestants are called Puritans, he was recognizing a defining feature of Puritan preaching. Simply this, they took God 
and the God of the gospel with the utmost seriousness. They weren't all ranters, very few of them were, but they preached with a seriousness because, let me quote to you um, some words from John Preston, there is not a sermon which is heard, but it sets us nearer heaven or hell. And so Richard Baxter says, of all the sermons I hate, I hate those that tend to levity. And so Puritan preaching was serious because it dealt with the issues of eternity. But secondly, the Puritans preached a whole Christ. Let me read to you these words of John Owen. This glory is the glory of our religion. What is he talking about? This glory is the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory. What is the only spring of present grace and future glory, do you think? What is Owen talking about? The hypostatic union. Ah, but is it not the cross? And John Owen would say to you, brother, sister, without the hypostatic union, there would be no cross, and it would be an empty cross even if there were one. They preached a whole Christ. They didn't just preach his benefits. They preached Jesus Christ. They didn't just preach justification. They preached Jesus Christ, our justifying righteousness. They preached Christ, his two natures, sent from the Father, upheld by the Spirit. They preached Trinitarianly. They understood that the cross of Jesus Christ rested on the eternal decree of God and on the glorious incarnation of the Son of God and on the preserving keeping by the Spirit of God of the God-man throughout his whole life. For it was by the eternal Spirit that he offered himself unblemished to God. There was a Trinitarian cast to Puritan preaching. And that's something we desperately need to recover in the church today. I was saying to a friend just earlier today, I've never come across a hymn from the first six centuries of the church that wasn't explicitly Trinitarian. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean we can't sing hymns that solely focus on the Savior or on the Spirit. I don't mean that, but they were so enraptured with the God who is three, but who is one, who is one, but who is three. When Calvin is dealing with the doctrine of God in book one of the Institutes, he, he says, these words of Gregory vastly delight me. Now, Calvin was a buttoned-up Frenchman, and when Calvin talks about being vastly delighted, you, you pause 
few years ago, I was rereading the, the oration that Calvin quotes from Gregory of Nazianzen, Baptismal Oration 40, section 41, I think. And my wife happened to be in the room, and one of our boys, I said, let, let me read this to you. It will just take three or four minutes. So I read it. And I turned to Joan. I said, what do you think of that? And she just sat in silence. And I turned to our Jonathan. I said, son, what did you think of that? And he simply said, wow. He's talking about the God who is three, but who is one, who is one, who is three. He's an undivided torch. And Gregory is, is speaking, uh, writing to a young man. He's preparing for baptism. And he says, you know, when I think of the Holy Trinity, there are times when my mind is overwhelmed, my heart is full, tears come to me, I have to step aside and worship. We're to preach Jesus Christ, sent of the Father, upheld by the Spirit. And the Puritans did that. They preached the whole Christ. They understood that you must never separate the benefits of Christ from the person of Christ. Number four, we need with the Puritans to recover God-honoring evangelical obedience. How did the Puritans counter the antinomianism and the legalism of their day? Well, they did so by preaching a whole Christ. But how did they do that? How did they seek to bring their people to lives of evangelical obedience, number one, let me quote to you some words of Thomas Goodwin. If thou wouldst know what sin is, go to Mount what? If thou would go, if thou wouldst know what sin is, go to Mount no, you go to Mount Calvary. Now, Goodwin is not saying you don't go to Mount Sinai, but where sin is most seen in all of its darkness is not at Sinai, but at Calvary. And the second way they did this was that if they ministered to believers who were struggling with obedience in any area of their life, they didn't preach to them about obedience. They preached to them about Jesus Christ. Let me read you some words of John Owen. Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays to renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. How do you get the people of God to abound in all the duties of obedience? You hold up to them the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls as a constant view of Christ and his glory. 
they preached a whole Christ. They understood that Jesus Christ was God's provision in every area of life for his people. Now, of course, they preached the duties of obedience. Of course they did. But never, never, never outside the Christological grid of the one in whom we have sanctification. He is our wisdom from God, even our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Number five, we need to recover the Puritan mindset of God-honoring supernaturalism. The best and most succinct uh, description I've ever come across of true Christianity is from Benjamin Warfield. Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. The Puritans were supernaturalists. They believed in the present powerful continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. They believed that preaching should always be in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. They understood that it wasn't enough to be technically exact in your exegesis or even helpful and instructive in your exposition. They knew that without the Holy Spirit, the preaching would be inert. Many of you will know John Owen's striking words. Without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. And he's simply echoing, I think, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Again, some of you will know this story. Some think it's maybe a little apocryphal, but I hope it's true. <laughs> At the Westminster Assembly, John Selden, a brilliant man, was an Erastian. He believed that the state should have ultimate sovereignty over the life of the church. He was a lay member of the Westminster Assembly. There were only two Erastian um, ministerial divines, but there were one or two from the House of Commons, and John Selden was one. And he was a brilliant man, and he stood up, and he gave this profound, profound exposition of ecclesiology from the standpoint of an Erastian, that the state has ultimate jurisdiction over the church. And all the while he's been speaking, one of the Scottish commissioners, a young man, George Gillespie, was seen to be writing. He just kept writing. And at the end of Selden's oration, one of the other Scottish commissioners, I think it may have been Samuel Rutherford, came to George Gillespie, having seen him writing and saying, George, stand and defend the crown rights of King Jesus in his church. And Gillespie stands and gives this magnificent rebuttal of the Erastianism of Selden. And Selden turns 
to one of his friends and says, that young man has destroyed all my learning in that speech. But this is what I want you to notice. At the end of the debate, some men came to Gillespie and said, we'd like to see your notes. And all they found were three Latin words written again and again and again. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. Give light, O Lord. Give light, O Lord. Give light, O Lord. You see, the Puritans understood that gospel giftedness isn't enough. The ministry of the word must be carried out in conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Thomas Watson wrote, ministers knock at the door of men's hearts. The Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. They were uninhibited supernaturalists. They believed in the power of God to come to one, to two, to ten, to twenty, to hundreds, to thousands. They had experienced some of them, the mighty eruptions of God the Holy Spirit in history, in their time. Believe in revival. Some of them had lived through revival and had come to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of revival. Number six, as we hurry on, we need to recover with the Puritans a God-honoring pilgrim mentality. Well, we all know the classic Puritan work, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, shame on you. And even if you have read it, read it again and again and again. But rather than quote from Bunyan, let me quote to you these words of Jeremiah Burroughs. We are here but on a pilgrimage or a voyage. Men will not take more on a journey than may help them. If you have only meat and drink, food and clothing, be content, said the apostle. The servants of God in times past pass through this world with very little, and many of them, the less they had, the more peace and comfort they had in God and the more fit they were to die. We do not have as much need for the things of the earth as we think we do. This is not simply about preparing for heaven, though it is that. Brothers and sisters, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly use you will be. We live in days when the church has become a prisoner, not just of the culture, but of the age. Our horizons, let me speak for myself, my horizons barely at times reach beyond myself. But we are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're on a journey. We're heading for the celestial city.
our Savior has gone to prepare a place for us. And this is something that our Puritan brothers and sisters were deeply existentially conscious of. And we need to recover that in the church today, perhaps in our pulpits, speaking about the nature of the Christian life. It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey. Wars and fightings and battles and struggles and failures and triumphs. But we're heading for a better country. Number seven, we need to recover God-honoring scriptural meditation. The Puritans understood that our greatest need is bound up with God's glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God. But often we miss the next bit or we downplay it somewhat sotto voce and enjoy him forever. God is to be enjoyed, savored. But how do you do that? Reading the scriptures and filling the mind with scriptural thoughts isn't enough. Let me quote to you from Thomas Brooks. Remember, it is not hasty reading but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Now, these words of John Owen, want of meditation is that fundamental mistake which keeps many among us so low in their grace So regardless of their privileges, they hear of these things, they assent to their truth, at least they do not gainsay them, but they never solemnly meditate upon them. And then Owen says this, this is very striking, certainly it was to me, in contemplation of this glory consists the principal exercise of faith. God is infinite and eternal. He is triune. And that's what Gregory Nazianzen wants to convey to this young man he's preparing for baptism. And this is what so singularly delighted the heart of Calvin. God is a bottomless deep. The infinities and the immensities of the triune God that we are to ponder and meditate on. Number eight, I simply mentioned the heading because I know my dear friend Jeff Thomas will deal with this. We need to recover God-honoring scriptural mortification. You know, I think I I was unusual because I didn't know any better. I started reading Owen at volume 10. That's not the place to start, is it, Steve? You don't start at 10. Most people, I think, start at six and seven mortification of sin, spiritual mindedness. 
But Owen, Owen is at his most glorious in volumes one, two, and three, the glory of Christ, communion with God, Holy Spirit. But in volume six on mortification, Owen dismantles you. Brothers and sisters, evangelical Christianity needs dismantled today. We need spiritually to be dismantled and then put back together again. Jeff Thomas will deal with us. So let me hurry on. Number nine, we need to recover God-honoring sweetness. Now, I need to explain myself. Some years ago, as I was looking at aspects of Augustine's confessions, I was quite struck by how often he spoke of God as his sweetness. Joan got me this very fine edition of the confessions, Latin one side, English in the other. And I was comparing it all the time and I thought, he keeps calling God his sweetness. And then as I was reading Calvin, he does the same thing. He talks about the gospel as sensus suavitatis sweet to the senses. In fact, Calvin says, if the gospel is not sweet to you, you've never understood it. And then you see it everywhere in Jonathan Edwards. Well, John Piper knows that better than anyone here. The Puritans had tasted that the Lord was good. It wasn't they were just captured by the truth of God. They were they were captivated by the loveliness of God. By the loveliness of God. I simply mention that because understanding that and experiencing it even a little will profoundly affect how you preach if you're a preacher. Because we are to preach as men not only whose minds have been captured by God's truth, but whose hearts have been captivated by God's triune glory, his majesty, and his grace. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 2 of, of being an aroma to God among those who are perishing and amongst those who are being saved. The gospel brings a fragrance to us. And the Puritans understood that, that gospel truth is not a concatenation of brute chunks of facts that are true. Gospel truth at its heart is penetrated by, suffused by the grace, the loveliness, the beauty and the majesty of him whom we call our Father in heaven, our elder brother who redeemed us by his blood, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Our time's really gone. Let me mention one last thing. We need with the Puritans to recover in our day God-honoring courage. Many of the Puritans suffered for their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. 
They refused to be intimidated by the state. When the king imposed his act of uniformity and these many other ancillary acts, many, not all Puritans were ejected, by the way. Some faithful godly men, for different reasons, remained within the established church. You never get all the good men on one side and all the bad men on the other. It never happens that way. But the vast majority of faithful Puritans refused to be intimidated by the state. They preferred to go out into the wilderness, losing everything, rather than bow the knee to laws imposed by kings intent on asserting their right to determine what the church should believe and how the church should behave. They believed that it was better to sit at a table in the wilderness with God than sit at a table with kings and prelates. We live in sad, tragic times. We live in times when the visible church of Jesus Christ has lamentably departed from the Word of God and from the God of the Word. But we don't live in unprecedented times. Just read your Bible. I preached through the book of Judges a few years ago and almost every study I thought, who in their right mind would put a book like that in their holy scriptures. But the most wise God did that we might learn. The life of the church on earth is very parabolic. We live in dark, darkening, and who knows what is yet to come. But whatever the times we're called to be faithful unto death, that's easy to say. I have friends for whom faithfulness could mean death, and some of you have too. But we're called to be faithful unto death. We're called to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The Puritans were mere men. Jeremy impressed that on us, didn't he, so helpfully yesterday. They were, they were mere men. But here's the thing. They were men who believed God, who loved the Son of God, who lived in dependence on the Spirit of God. And if I were asked, what, what was the essence, do you think, of Puritanism in its broadest sense? I think I would say they were men and women who lived coram deo. They lived before the face of God. They weren't looking out the corner of their eyes, wondering what the chorus were thinking. They lived coram deo. That's what God honors. That's what God honors. Even if it means like Cranmer, Ridley, and Latimer, you're burned at a stake. Whether it means like William Chalmers Burns, you're pelted with rocks and mud in Dublin and Ottawa. 
whether it means you're excoriated as the offscouring of the world, whether it means you're marginalized in society, whether it means that the rest of visible Christendom thinks you're not worth even talking about. If you live Coram Deo, you have the smile of God upon your life. So why do we need a Puritan mindset? Only one reason. It was a mindset shaped and forged and styled by the Word of God, the God who doesn't change, whose truth is transgenerational. Someone once said to me, Ian, your views are positively medieval. I said to him, oh, it's a lot worse than that. (laughs) They're antediluvian. Antediluvian. 